0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: What's the best way to grow or attract jobs? Is it with money, incentives, or is there another way? Chad Livengood of Trains Detroit Business will join us to talk about ways in which we might think differently about attracting jobs. Then we're going to talk about redistricting fights unfolding in Ohio and Alabama and what they might mean for our redistricting process here in Michigan. It's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Next. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson, and as always, it's really great that you have joined us. Michigan companies are constantly vying for subsidies and incentives from lawmakers with the promise of creating more jobs. Think of how often we talk about the way that we should be growing our economy, how we get more people, opportunities to work, and how much those discussions involve payments, big payments, to companies who say, hey, give us the money, we'll create the jobs. And that kind of goes double for the auto industry. It is the most significant economic engine we have here in Michigan, and it's still a dominant player in the field. And automakers definitely throw their weight around from time to time to keep this going. Just this week, GM announced that it is going to invest over $6.5 billion in Michigan through 2024 to increase electric truck production, and to build a new EV battery cell plant, which will yield thousands of Michigan jobs. When they say these things, you can just feel the excitement that we get here in Michigan that, hey, they're gonna, they're gonna build a new plant. They're gonna retrofit this plant to do something that we need in the future. But let's be honest, GM did not do this out of goodwill. To get these projects done, $600 million of direct Michigan taxpayer money is going to GM and its business partner, LG Energy. In a new column in Cranes, Chad Good questions whether this is the best way to develop Michigan's economy and if we maybe shouldn't be chasing different kinds of jobs, knowledge sector jobs, like those being created at Ford's new future headquarters in Detroit's old train station. That's where we begin the conversation today. What is the best way to grow jobs? What is the best way to grow the economy? We've had this debate forever in this state and forever in this country. And this week's news about GM suggests we're still thinking very much in the old way about how to make sure that there's opportunity and that the economy can churn in a way that helps everyone. I wanna welcome Chad Livengood. He is senior editor at Cranes Detroit. He covers public policy and has a column that is titled, Losing the Wrong War. Why winning knowledge economy jobs is about more than writing big checks. Chad, welcome back to Detroit today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen.
1: So let's start here. What was the deal that gm and lg energy energy got and what do they say they're going to do with all this money
2: yeah so so gm and lg energy's entire uh incentives package totals 820 million dollars uh it's by far for a single package project uh probably the largest project in in uh incentives package in state history for one project just to kind of for people's uh, um, knowledge uh Dan Gilbert got a, a tax incentives uh, valued at six hundred and fourteen million dollars for his multiple uh downtown detroit uh office building projects including the the skyscraper uh at the old hudson's site so this 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 package blows that cost out of out of the water the The bigger thing that is uh, is kind of unusual about this for the first time in state history. Taxpayers in Michigan are writing a direct check, uh, cash money, um, of $600 million uh, straight to General Motors and its uh, battery partner for uh, the construction of a new battery plant up in Eaton County, just on the west side of Lansing, and for the expansion of the Orient Township assembly plant where they'll be, they'll be building a, a new all-electric uh, Chevy Silverado. Mm-hmm. Um there, the GM is plan, uh, is is um, is promising uh, to create up to four thousand jobs. So, if you just do the math, um, uh, you take away uh, and then on top of that, six hundred million dollars, GM is getting another sixty-six million dollars of infrastructure improvements. This is uh, this is coming out of another uh, direct fund from taxpayers. So, you can you can say it's six hundred and sixty million dollars of of just general tax dollars. The rest is going to be. Um, a tax abatement, so they won 't pay property tax for uh, this this expansion in, in orient township and and this new uh, plant uh, in Eaton County for about fifteen years the The total cost comes out to one hundred and sixty six thousand five hundred dollars per job. So what kind of jobs are we getting um, in in orient township we're getting twenty seven dollars an hour average wage production jobs. Uh, it comes out to about $56,000 a year. Mm-hmm. In Oakland County, that is $23,000 below the median household income in yeah. Oakland County. So we're not – in the qualifications – I mean, we had a program a few years ago called Good Jobs for Michigan. Th- these jobs in Orient Township wouldn't even qualify for the good jobs. Uh, you 'd have to be closer than twenty nine dollars an hour uh to uh to to make that uh, 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 designation so we we have really kind of lowered this, the bar here in the in the thirst to get a battery plant and and let me make clear uh, we have lots of construction jobs created by this and and it's going to you know spur economic development for a while but uh, long term, we're not, cre- we're not creating wealth uh, and prosperity through mm-hmm. through these continued hunt for manufacturing production jobs. And my piece this week in Cranes, I'm trying to focus in on on we have an opportunity. Uh, Michigan Detroit has an opportunity with Ford's pro- project at the, at the train station, where Ford is promising to bring 2,500 of its own engineers, tech workers, computer programmers in. Uh, and also 2500 partners from other companies to work on the development of autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. Um, this is the ball game now in, auto, in, uh, in the automotive industry. The company that can invent the programming that makes a car uh, drive itself uh, is going to to win the day uh, mm. and, and it's no longer about uh, horsepower. It's about who who can can actually create that vehicle that is going to be safe and and use as less uh, fuels as possible. And Ford has made a bet that if they build this cool, hip campus in Corktown, that they will attract the best talent. They're going up against General Motors. General Motors uh, went and bought an autonomous vehicle company in San Francisco called Cruise in 2016. There are now... 2,000 highly paid tech workers for GM working in San Francisco. Uh, they don't work at the Drensen. They don't work at the Warren Tech Center. Uh, they, they pay taxes to the state of California. Uh, and we already have evidence that we're losing this battle for the auto tech uh, jobs. Rivian, uh, which when it went public, its stock is triple the, the price of, of Ford right now. Rivian was born in Michigan in Plymouth. They still have a tech center in Plymouth, but they moved their headquarters to to, uh, Irvine, California in June of of 2020. And we didn't hardly even notice in this Mm. state that we lost this unicorn um, electric truck uh, startup company in the middle of the night Mm. uh, and lost all that tech talent as well. So we have two cases here where where the, the, the tech talent is moving to Silicon Valley uh, to be closer to, the, to compete with the big tech companies of Google and Apple and, and Amazon, and, um, and our auto industry is really going to be dependent upon knowledge uh, um, and innovation more than uh, muscle and, and uh, working on an assembly line.
1: Hmm. So and I absolutely want to get our callers going on this. I know there are a lot of people with really strong opinions about the way we grow and attract jobs here. So uh, give us a call. Let us know what you think about this new deal for General Motors. Uh, let us know what you think about the overall approach that we take here in Michigan to attracting and growing jobs. The massive incentives that move from government to private industry to help them build things or open things that they say will create jobs and wealth. Do you think we get sufficient return from those things? Do you feel like uh, we're getting the jobs that we need? Do you think our economy is growing the way it should? Or do you think we ought to be thinking about this really differently and coming up with other ways to lift, especially uh, people on the lower end of the economic scale, to a higher standard of, of living. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter, and you can put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation uh, as well. But but Chad, I wanna I want just throw out the, the line that we always hear when you question these kinds of incentives and it goes like this. Well, this might not be the best way to grow jobs, but if Michigan unilaterally disarms in the incentives race, well, these companies would just go somewhere else. Can you imagine if GM announced that it was gonna spend $6.5 billion in Indiana or worse someplace like Tennessee or North Carolina uh, places that really want to attract the auto business that we still have here in Michigan. So, so that is what mm-hmm. what the, both business leaders and politicians say all the time. What's the answer to that that question?
2: Well, and that's what exactly what happened here was Ford Motor Company said, "Hey, we and a battery partner are going to spend eleven billion dollars in Tennessee and Kentucky." uh building three battery plants and and a and a new vehicle assembly plant down in Tennessee. This is what got uh uh Michigan lawmakers and the governor uh in in motion uh to write a check for 600 million dollars this week uh to General Motors because uh, and essentially just for for people's understanding, uh Tennessee is giving Ford a 500 million dollar uh direct cash subsidy for a battery plant and an assembly plant and and so this 600 million dollars is right kind of in line with the uh the current uh, market rate so to speak for direct uh, subsidies of these jobs um i'm not saying that we shouldn't be uh, pursuing these jobs or pursuing battery plants but we are we don't have any policies that are pursuing knowledge based work in the state, we 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 do not have um, a coherent higher education policy in Michigan. The policy mm-hmm. for the past two decades has been, initially, was to this um, uh, uh, disinvest, and it has been stagnant uh, uh, reinvestment uh, or or a return to uh, to uh, state support of public universities and public education. We rank uh, as a state dead last in the country in state-supported financial aid for college. Hmm. Wow. N- number 50. Um, I, mean, uh, we, we, I mean, we talk about top 10 state status and business leaders in this town talk about this all the time and they go to Mackinac Island and they hold conferences about it uh, until we're blue in the face, but we're not doing anything uh, to lower the cost of, of college uh, to attend here either as an in-state student or out-of-state student. We should be. We have some of the best universities in the planet, mm-hmm. um, at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and, and Michigan State and Wayne State, and we are not um, we are not out uh, marketing those those institutions enough and trying to attract people to come come to school here and then stay here. Um, we are out trying to attract uh, young work, tech workers to come live here uh, and and to leave. The, the coast essentially um we have, we have some cases of it and quicken loans uh bracket mortgages now they've they may be one of the success stories in that in that regard because they couldn't find the talent here they have they've had to go out and recruit it from other corners of the, of the country this is the only way we're going to grow i mean we we had just kind of remarkable um, split screen, um, uh, um, moments this week. We, I mean, last week, um, GM CEO, um, uh, Mary Barra was, was in San Francisco testing out and riding around an autonomous car developed by those engineers, those GM engineers working uh, for, for the cruise unit out in San Francisco. Then she was, then she was on stage with the governor on Wednesday announcing this, this, this big, um, uh, investment in, in manufacturing plants here in the state. The next day, the next day, General Motors uh, came out in a news story and said they, they're hiring 8,000 tech workers, is software engineers, uh, cybersecurity experts, all kinds of technical jobs that, that are high-paying jobs. Hmm. And here's the reality with COVID now, Stephen – those jobs don't need to be done at the Warren Tech Center or the Renaissance Center anymore. Right. They can you can you can live in Boulder uh, and uh, and and work for General Motors presumably, like a lot of companies right now that are desperate for computer programmers and other types of of uh, in demand uh, tech jobs. You don't have to you don't have to be physically planted in in a city anymore. So. We have we have an existential crisis on several fronts. Part of it, part of that's been sort of brought on by COVID, but also brought on by our policies that are just more focused on winning these big projects for headlines and and uh, congratulatory uh, you know um, uh, press conferences with 15 people stand up and 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 talk uh, and and we're less focused. On, on producing uh, four-year four-year uh, degrees uh, for the fields that our own companies are telling us they need people. They in. Want, and we didn't want. have to pay anything for those eight thousand jobs. By the way, yeah. we, we we paid we paid mightily on Wednesday for four thousand lower-paying assembly jobs, and and then we didn't have to pay a dime for GM to say, hey, we need eight thousand tech workers right yeah. now. Yeah.
1: When we come back, we're gonna continue this conversation about growing the economy, adding jobs, and whether we're getting that right here in Michigan. We wanna hear from you, we'll get to the phones next. 313-577-1019 is the number. Amanda in Detroit, Brian in Dearborn, Bernadette in Old Redford, uh, we'll get you first. Uh, You can also go to social media, Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Tonight.
3: Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station.
1: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Chad Livengood, a senior editor at Crane's Detroit Business. We're talking about the big news this week that GM announced it's going to invest $6.5 billion in Michigan through 2024 to increase electric truck production and build a new EV battery cell plant. But That investment doesn't come without some really expensive strings. $600 million of direct Michigan taxpayer money is going to GM to incentivize this. We're asking whether that's the right way to grow the economy, to grow jobs, and whether different kinds of investments in different kinds of jobs would yield bigger returns. We're going to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll work you in that way. We're going to start today with Amanda in Detroit. Amanda, what's on your mind?
4: Good morning, Stephen. I've worked for many years in um, outreach at both the Elementary or middle school, high school level, and uh, right now I'm working with adults. And we're failing miserably in switching from a manufacturing-based economy to a knowledge-based economy because we're focusing on, one, the language of jobs versus careers. A knowledge-based economy needs different sets of skills. And if you look not just at the end result, at the post-secondary um, education market point Of it, but you look further back on along the line in the high school, middle school, elementary school. We're failing at teaching people the skills that are necessary to function in a knowledge-based economy. It's the soft skills, the creativity, Mm -hmm. the thinking. We're still focused on command and control classrooms. We're still focused on rote memorization and standardized testing. So of course we don't have the the skills that companies are telling us that we need to have to get people into these high paying careers. And we don't have the infrastructure otherwise in the state, because our schools are in such poor condition to attract the people from the coast to want to move here. And with the um, accommodations that COVID has afforded us in this sort of sick twisted kind of way, you don't have to be at the location where you're doing the work. You can fly in every once in a while for a meeting if you have to be in person because somebody feels it necessary to check that box. But we're not positioned for growth for the future. And we're failing miserably and we're going to continue to fail miserably. Amanda,
1: that's a great summation of of what we're not doing what we're not doing right. And you know, the thing that's frustrating is that we keep having this conversation I mean business leaders are saying this as loudly as anyone else that that look they need they need a different approach by this state especially to education to to create the kinds of opportunities that people could take advantage of um, uh, to, to to work in in the future and we just never we never quite pivot is the is the thing I mean we, we talk about it everybody agrees it needs to be done and then it just doesn't really happen. Uh, Amanda, really appreciate the call and the, and the comments. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I know how we can pay for this you know, remember a few years ago when big business got that giant half a billion dollar tax cut boom claw that back and you could pay for it and i have to agree with amanda's point you got to grow some minds who are capable of doing this and we're not putting the money in education that's where we can make the investment
1: hmm. uh, Bernadette, that's a that is a really interesting comment and i think the issue of clawbacks is something that i think is a is a somewhat practical way to to go about this every politician i've asked about it though in the last decade has said it's not possible it, how would you ever calculate how would you ever figure out if they actually delivered on these things but the the avoidance when you bring this up really suggests an unwillingness to try to hold businesses accountable in any way for the promises they make. Chad, what, what, what do you make of that part of this discussion? The whole idea of saying, look GM $600 million better get us X, Y, or Z, or you may owe some of that back.
2: Yeah. I mean, GM's basic requirements is they have to show at the end of the project, they've, they've created the 3,200 to 4,000 jobs at these two plants um and and that they've made the capital investment that they that they uh in in the cost of the construction of them that they promised that is essentially the requirement and that's a requirement from mo- almost all of these projects we have just never had one of this scale um where we're handing over this this vast sum of money uh to a single uh company uh for for a couple of different projects so we should also note that General Motors is going to continue to, to collect its uh, mega tax credits. Uh, this is These are the tax credits. They were started under the Ingler administration, and they were um, uh, put on steroids under the Grandholm administration uh, back in 2009 when General Motors and Chrysler emerged from bankruptcy as part of the deal to kind of keep these companies intact and keep them in Michigan. Um, the uh, Jennifer Granholm, Governor Granholm's administration awarded a tax break that essentially refund the income tax for um, most of the uh, white collar uh, workers for all, for all three automakers. Um, so if you make $100,000 a year, you get paid, taxed $4,250. Uh, 4, $4, uh, GM gets to collect that four thousand two hundred fifty dollars uh, income tax, uh, and they get to keep collecting that until the end of this decade. As, as, as they they basically uh, we as we got rid of the Michigan business tax in two thousand eleven, we kept it for for uh, GM, Ford, uh, Chrysler, now Stellantis, and and a, a handful of uh, tier one auto suppliers that got these te- these tax credits, and so. We should just kind of note that that, that this is a company that basically, uh, for, for state income tax purposes, is living tax-free and has been uh, for the past uh, uh, decade uh, because of policies by the past prior two administrations. Yeah yeah i want to read a
1: couple of social media comments jeff on twitter says encourage as much business diversity as possible anything other than auto-related agricultural manufacturing or health and medical research terrifies the leadership of this state we have great universities but the grads leave because the job market is so limited anthony on twitter writes they don't call it government motors for nothing <laughs> That's a, a really That's a really funny comment. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, one option would would be to have on-site daycare for the employee's children. The problem is that it is difficult for the powers that be to get behind ideas that help the citizens, although they have no issue giving away tax breaks to every corporation that asks for them. Uh, Let's go next to Brian in Dearborn. Brian, what's on your mind?
0: Hey, Stephen, and uh, hi, Chad. I wanted to bring up a point because you guys were talking earlier about, you know, high-tech jobs and all the talk about how we need more high-tech jobs in Michigan. But, you know, we need to talk about the way that GM and other large companies contract out their tech work within Metro Detroit. It's basically an open secret that any company that wants to do tech work for any of the big three has to basically get 50% of their labor or more from India or other countries. And if it's not an H-2B visa, then it's, you know, essentially a company where the workers are over um, in those places working remotely. And so, you know, programmers and these quote-unquote tech jobs that everybody says they want to incentivize, they're facing wage competition that they just can't, uh, match up against. And so we had a lot of programmers and tech people in the 80s and 90s. We had Unisys and Compuware and, you know, Burroughs and a lot of these different companies here. But this stuff has been eroded over time because uh, the big three doesn't want to pay for quality labor, quality American labor, when it comes to these high-tech jobs. And that's something that nobody wants to talk about, and it needs to be said because when they get these government incentives to make things here in Michigan hmm. well, you know, some of these the, the highest paying, you know, tech jobs yeah. are being completely outsourced and it a lot that's of a, it happens through their subcontracting. Yeah. That's and a great I think that's something that needs to be talked about. It's a great it's
1: a great point, Brian. I'm glad you called and, and, and made it. Chad, what about this dimension of of what's going on here? I mean there's a lot of there are a lot of different layers uh, to to this issue. This is a really interesting and important one I think
2: yeah I mean there are a lot of layers I, I do know that right now in this in this uh, current job market um, companies that need uh, computer programmers are going to any um, uh, person who has the skills and they don't really care where they're at anymore I mean if they have to go to other states uh, you can work remotely uh, and that that kind of drives home the point like you could work for Quicken Loans as a programmer Living in Boulder, and so the larger point here is we need to be develop policies to make Michigan more attractive to live, to grow, to raise a family, to buy homes, um, have a have affordable co- uh, uh, housing stock, good roads, um, all the things that we talk about day in day out uh, on this show and others. Uh, those are those policies ultimately are going to help. Uh, uh, get people to live here they may not necessarily be employed here they might be employed somewhere else but uh, that that creates the uh, the environment, it creates the marketplace uh, in order to uh, to fulfill the, the jobs of the future
1: Okay Chad Livengood, always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today, thanks so much for joining today to talk about uh, these incentives Thanks for having me when we come back, we are going to talk about redistricting again. But We're going to talk about something a little different. We're going to talk with journalist Clara Hendrickson about the latest news about legal challenges that threw out the maps in Ohio and Alabama. And whether of those suits kind of spell trouble for the new maps here, which are also being challenged. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Michigan's new political maps are historic. They're the first maps drawn by a citizen's redistricting commission and not our politicians. But that historic significance won't necessarily guarantee that they'll hold up in court. There are now at least two major legal challenges to those maps that could result in judges throwing them out and a frenzied effort to draw new maps on the back end and that's exactly what has happened in a couple other states recently ohio and alabama both saw their maps tossed out in court in the first case it was excessive gerrymandering that made the maps illegal in the latter it was the way the district lines diluted black voting power which is the subject of one of the cases here in michigan now neither ohio nor alabama has an independent redistricting commission their maps were drawn by partisan lawmakers the way ours used to be but it still raises an important question could these rulings have implications for michigan's redistricting map could this be a harbinger of what judges here might say about what the Commission did. And if our maps get thrown out, what happens next? That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And joining us to talk about it is Clara Hendrickson. She's a reporter with the Detroit Free Press and PolitiFact Michigan. Clara, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So just to recap and catch everyone up, uh, what's going on right now with Michigan's political maps and how are they proceeding through, I guess, the court phase of the redraw?
3: So the... Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission adopted new congressional and state legislative maps in late December. And those were adopted across party lines. You had Democrats, independents, and Republicans on the commission approving those final maps. And now we're sort of in the post-MAP adoption litigation phase of the redistricting process. There are currently two lawsuits against the commission's work. There's a lawsuit in the Michigan Supreme Court challenging the maps on uh, the basis that the commission violated federal voting rights requirements. And then there's a federal challenge arguing that the uh, population differences in the congressional maps are not legally justified. And it sounds like we're going to have another lawsuit on the way. The League of Women Voters of Michigan and some other groups this morning just announced that they are planning to sue the commission next week over the Michigan House map, arguing that it is unfair.
1: And if these proceedings succeed, if what the maps are overturned for any reason. I think a big question is what happens then when we changed the state constitution in 2018 to create this process, this independent commission process, rather than leaving it to politicians. There were a lot of processes that were put into place and requirements for the the way in which maps can be drawn. If the, if the maps get overturned, we will be staring Filing deadlines in the face, and it, it it seems like according to the text of what we did in the Constitution and law, we we wouldn't be able to come up with new maps in the in the allotted time. Has anyone talked about what that might look like?
3: I think you're right. I think we're staring down a bunch of different uh, hypotheticals here, and there there are a lot of unknowns the The Michigan Constitution is clear that if the commission's maps are found to have not met the, the mapping criteria as outlined uh, in the in the state constitution, that the court should remand the plan back to the commission for it to be redrawn. But whether or not the commission would have to go through a similar process of having public hearings to receive input on those maps, that's kind of an unknown. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there is that April 19 filing deadline for congressional and state legislative candidates. So Could the commission finish that work if it needs to go back to the drawing board uh, before that deadline, I think, is is a big unanswered question as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what's happening in Ohio and in Alabama. I have been following the news from both those states really closely because I'm fascinated by the whole redistricting process anyway. And I I think it's unusual to see as many of these as as we have so far. I mean, maps get thrown out sometimes that that happens. But for two of them to have happened so far, I don't know. It seems like maybe there are there are closer inspections, perhaps, I guess, going on of 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 some of these claims and some of these maps. Uh, But but let's start with with what happened in those two states.
3: Right. So in Ohio, as as you noted, the the maps were um, thrown out by the the Ohio Supreme Court on the grounds that they uh, had a, a disproportionate advantage for Republicans, and I think there's there are some notable differences between what happened there and what's happened in Michigan. Of course, in Ohio, you have uh, Republicans still dominating, Republican lawmakers still dominating the redistricting process. In Michigan, we had uh, the commissioners coming together across party lines to draw the maps and adopt them. So the the process was quite different. And I think arguably the outcome is different as well. I was taking a quick scan through some of the different scoring measures used to evaluate the maps and Ohio's maps that were tossed out were way more uh, favorable to Republicans than Michigan's maps are. And so I think the question is whether the commission um, didn't live up to the partisan fairness requirements here, I think that that will be interesting to see how a court handles that because it is a new requirement um, this time around in Michigan's redistricting cycle.
1: Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about Alabama, which I think uh, may have more direct parallels, at least in theory and legal theory, to what the claims are here in Michigan.
3: So I, I think that that uh, that lawsuit is a bit different than what's happening in Michigan. So the the Alabama um, court basically said that the, the congressional map likely violated the Voting Rights Act because those who had drawn the maps limited black voters influence by concentrating them excessively in a single district. And the court said You have to create two congressional districts that are going to spread out Black voters and increase the number of opportunities for their political representation. In Michigan, we are seeing current and former Detroit lawmakers making the opposite argument against the commission's maps. They're contending that Black voters have been spread too thinly across the districts and that there aren't enough Black voters in those districts to provide an opportunity for them to elect their preferred candidates. Mm. So uh,
1: when we talk about the challenges here and what the likelihood is of of their success uh, does it does it make it more difficult for these suits to succeed uh, because the process was so different and because the process was so transparent I mean you you've got a um, you've got a a map, a set of maps drawn by citizens out in the open. What's the distinction perhaps that judges might draw because of the way we did this, uh, even though the, you know, the outcomes have upset so many people.
3: I think that is an excellent question. And I, I honestly don't really know the answer to that, whether the the process and how things played out here is going to have any weight in court I think what these lawsuits are really focused on is is the outcome of that process. I mean, you could theoretically have an incredibly transparent redistricting process like the one that we had in Michigan, and you could see a map come out of that process that does not meet the criteria. And so I think that that is really what the lawsuits are focused on and what the courts are going to be focused on as well.
1: Hmm. I'm talking with Clara Hendrickson. She's a reporter at the Detroit Free Press and Politifact, Michigan. We're talking about redistricting, uh, the update that uh, that now includes two states that have seen their maps thrown out: one for excessive political gerrymandering, another for diluting black voting power. Uh, There's a scramble on in both of those states to redraw the maps before people have to decide whether they're running and where they're running uh, for elected offices in those states. The question is what will happen to the maps that were produced here in Michigan for the first time by an independent citizens uh, redistricting council? We wanna hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think of the maps that we uh, have come up with here in Michigan and do you agree with the people who are challenging these maps in court that they either disenfranchise too many black voters or illegally break up committees, uh, communities? There are a lot of people who have been talking about the ways in which their communities get kind of carved up in this process. They, the boundaries look really different than they did 10 years ago when politicians were still drawing the lines um, what do you think of what we came up with, and what do you think should happen to it? Uh, also, what do you make out of the news in Ohio and Alabama that those states' new political maps have been tossed out in court? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, you can get be in, included in the conversation that way, Claire, I also want to talk about what 's going on the past couple of days with the redistricting commission on Wednesday. The general counsel for the commission resigned. I saw some chatter, I think last night that um, uh, that there was uh, an exchange uh, an intense meeting uh, of the of the commissioners. Is this coming unraveled now because of the challenges to the suit or Was this kind of building uh, among the disagreements that people had while they were drawing the maps?
3: So having watched hours and hours of commission meetings, I can say that there have definitely been tense moments throughout the redistricting process. Commissioners were Um, Clashing at points, disagreeing, there were allegations of commissioners being snarky to one another, all of that, you know, just sort of typical squabbling among members of a public body. But I don't think I had really seen anything like some of the tense exchanges that were dealt yesterday at the commission's meeting. Uh, there was a move by one of the Republican commissioners to censure the commission's chair. There were calls to you know shut that down and to Um, not have that conversation out in the open. Those calls were rebuffed. The censure vote failed, but we saw, you know, some yelling. One of the commissioners became quite emotional, so it it was uh, uncomfortable and and difficult to watch at points, and I think just is indicative of the kind of stress that the commission is under at this point where it is staring down multiple lawsuits challenging its work.
1: Yeah, so this, this, uh, these allegations of bullying, of yelling, a failed censure vote, does it, it does it tarnish? I guess the, I, I feel like this commission has had kind of a glow around it for mm-hmm. a little bit. Where you know, I mean, when this passed in twenty eighteen, we had no idea what it would look like, and it took two years to to build it out. And then it took a long time last year, really, to figure out how this all should work. And every bump was cleared and and they got to agreement, if if not harmony, <laughs> on, on, <laughs> on all of the maps. And I think, you know, for the last month, they've been, I think we've been thinking of this as a victory for the decision that was made in, in 2018. Not perfect, but perfect you know per, moving in the direction of perfect uh, and and you know uh, reflecting very genuinely the sentiment of the voters who decided that they wanted to do it this way this this fighting now seems to pull back the curtain in a way that says well don't be so impressed and i i guess i'm not sure what we're what we're to mm-hmm. make of all of this
3: right i think you're you're totally right that after the commission adopted maps, their work was sort of heralded as a huge victory for the anti-gerrymandering movement and an example of how random, randomly selected folks could work together to draw fair maps. And now I think that that is being tested a little bit. And while other commissions across the country sort of unraveled and had all these sort of partisan fights. What we're seeing in Michigan's commission is more of a clash of personalities. And I think it can be hard for um, folks who are quite different to all have to come to the table and accomplish something as monumental as drawing new political boundaries. That is not an easy thing to do, and they had to do it under a time crunch. And of course, it was going to be kind of a tense process. I did speak to one commissioner, uh, independent commissioner Anthony yesterday, and I think he provided um, some useful perspective that because of the transparency requirements, they're forced to have all of these uncomfortable conversations out in the open. And he urged people not to leave uh, that meeting um, thinking that it was sort of the end of the world for the commission that they actually got the job done. They adopted maps. Um, and, you know, it was just sort of a, a hard meeting and, and that was it.
1: Yeah. So then I guess the question is, if the court says, look, you didn't do this according to the law, you didn't meet these standards, you got to redraw. Uh, what will these tensions look like when you add to the equation, the urgency of having to redraw maps In what could be a very tight window, will the commission be able to function uh, with this kind of open air uh, uh, tension and and fighting?
3: I I don't know. I I think if that does happen, we'll find out. I will say that the commission did take um, a very deliberate approach in its first round of mapping to try and get every commissioner to... uh, provide input on where the lines should be drawn and there were there are times when commissioners would sort of skip a turn and say I don't really feel like uh, leading the mapping process, there there was a sense that maybe some commissioners um, were more adept at the mapping than others and more willing to sort of take on that responsibility. So whether or not we sort of see that collaborative process that was quite slow, um, or if we will see one or two commissioners kind of dominate the redrawing process, I think that that'll be something that's interesting to watch as well.
1: Well, and if the maps are thrown out, it gives lift, I guess, to some of the commissioners who've had real criticisms of what they ended up with. I mean, these maps were adopted, but there were, there were commissioners who said, look, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with, uh, with what we did. Uh, You know, one question I think that also is out there is whether, you know, there were, there were many different approaches that were taken to all of Mm -hmm. this. Uh, Could you just pick up one of the other maps and say, well, this is the one we're going to use now, or, does the law really require a more deliberative process?
3: Right. I think one criticism that has been raised over and over again is that the commission had all of these different examples of maps that they could use, and they did use a lot of the community of interest maps as a sort of starting point, but they didn't really look at some of the statewide maps that were put on the table by various advocacy groups. And I think that that was mostly out of a desire to demonstrate that we were going to, you know, have complete control over the mapping process. We're not going to be influenced by any group that may be uh, perceived as having a partisan interest. We're going to do the work ourselves. And I I think some folks are frustrated that the commission uh, didn't look at those maps as more of an example to inform their work because people saw those maps as being better than what the commission put together.
1: Yeah. Before we end, I want to take a quick phone call here, Julie, in Orchard Lake. Julie, go ahead. I've only got a couple minutes left.
4: All right. Um, I just wanted to bring up the information that was recently discovered with uh, some kind of a, a university study that there was a significant undercount in a, in the specific area that was that was looked at in Detroit of the black population um, in this year's census. <clears throat> And the problems with this year's census, um, because it was, you know, so litigated by the Trump administration and how that plays into redrawing these districts when I don't even know that the census is accurate.
1: Right. Julie, I don't think you're the only one who's questioning those census numbers. And the mayor of Detroit says, for instance, that there was a massive undercount. Uh, Clara, talk about the role that that played in the process, but also what role that could play maybe in some of the the legal deliberation uh, and whether these maps stand up.
3: So my understanding is that the process for rectifying an undercount in the census is separate from what anything the redistricting Con- commission can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, of course, uh, have been identified inaccuracies with the count, particularly in Detroit, which um, there was an undercount identified here. But uh, the commission had to work with the census data, even if that data was not completely accurate. So the data is what the data is. And I think whether or not um, the census corrects any of that and if that could have an implication on how the maps are drawn, uh, again, I think that's sort of an unanswered question.
1: Okay. Clara Hendrickson, uh, always great to have you here to talk about uh, redistricting. The saga is not over. We've got a lot of story ahead of us, but, uh, but thanks for catching us up.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay. That's going to do it for us this week. On Monday, we're going to talk about how the Joe Louis Greenway is going to affect Detroit neighborhoods and talk about how infrastructure can drive inequities and how it can help them. This is 1019 WDETFM Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk on Monday.